happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. And um, if, we, if there was a father that anyone could brag about, it would be our Father in Heaven, wouldn't it? I, uh, let's pray together. Father in Heaven, we thank you so much that you are and indeed not just a good father, but a great father. An incredible father that pours forth all that we need when we couldn't do it ourselves. You gave us your son, Jesus Christ. And that's how much you loved us. So, Father, as we look at your word today, I pray, Father, that you would make it come alive in our lives and help us to recognize what a gift you are to us. For I ask it in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So, speaking about bragging about their dads, I, uh, years ago I had heard a, a little story about three boys that were at school. They were bragging about their fathers. And the first boy said, well, my dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper, and he calls it a poem, and they pay him 50 bucks. The second boy says, well, my, that's nothing. My dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper, and he calls it a song, and they pay him $100. The third boy says, well, I got you both beat. My dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a sermon, and it takes eight people to collect the money. Into the Eye, uh, the Needle's Eye, a book by William Reiser, he writes these words. He says, many parents have waited for years for their children to acknowledge that they have been loved. Parents live in hope for the day when a child will realize what love he has, has, he has received. I remember a father confiding in me. He writes that he would give anything he had in order to have his son come home one day and throw his arms not around his father, that would have been too much to hope for, but around his mother and tell her, I love you. You think it's beyond the realm of reason that it may be too far-fetched to think that God, our Father in heaven, desires the same thing from us? Do you think it might be possible, indeed even probable, that the God of the universe, who has not only given us his life, but has also lavishly poured out his love and care upon us, that he longs for us to gratefully acknowledge how deeply we have been loved by him? The answer, I believe, is yes, he does. I believe the prophet Hosea captured that emotion. We can almost hear the longing tone in God's voice as he pours out his heart to his prodigal people in Israel when the prophet writes these words, When Israel was a child, I loved him and called him out of Egypt as my son. But the more I called to him, the more he turned away from me. My people sacrificed to Baal. They burnt incense to idols, yet I was the one who taught Israel to walk. I took my people up in my arms, but they did not acknowledge that I took care of them. I drew them to me with affection and love. I picked them up and I held them to my cheek. I bent down to them and fed them. How can I give you up, Israel? How can I abandon you? My heart will not let me do it, for my love is too strong. That's the heart of our Heavenly Father. Is there any question that he desires to be loved by us as his children? We encounter that same sentiment as God's voice resonates into the pages of the New Testament in my estimation, the beloved Apostle John was more in touch with the intense love of God that, that God has for his prodigal people than any other writer in the New Testament. Why? 
because it was only John who identified himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It was John alone who captured Jesus' own description of his Father's heart of longing for you and me. It was John who gave us the most quoted, most soothing, most helpful, most hopeful, and most penetrating verses of Scripture the church has ever known. In John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, John writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now here, in no uncertain terms, God makes himself vulnerable. He bears his heart to the world, revealing his love and his desire for us as he beckons us to come home. If there was ever a text for a Father's Day message, I think this is the quintessential one. It is good and it is certainly right to acknowledge our earthly fathers on Father's Day. No question about it. But it is so much more needful for all of us to turn our attention, our gratitude, and our love and our praise to our Father in heaven. Amen? And we so often forget to do that. I'm convinced that we can never truly appreciate our earthly fathers until we have first understood and acknowledged the love of our heavenly Father. Because ultimately, the heart of a father's love is experienced fully in the God who is love. The Father's Day is a difficult holiday to deal with these days. Sadly, the concept that floods one's mind when he hears the word father may not necessarily be one of protection or provision or concern or even love, depending upon one's relationship to their earthly father. I've spoken to many fathers who just don't have any respect for their earthly fathers because of the way that they were brought up. It may instead paint a picture of a preoccupation with other things, leaving behind a trail of unfulfilled promises and unnecessary pain. Let me ask you, what do you think about when you hear the word father? And more importantly, what do your children, if you have children, think about when they hear the word father? Now, I take my place alongside of author Richard Foster when I say that I grieve for those, who, for those wounded by these terribly destructive experiences, and I pray. I pray that they may know grace and healing even as we speak. Yet at the same time, I hold the deep-seated belief that to reject God and to refuse to acknowledge him as a loving father based on the trauma of our poor earthly father-child relationship is sometimes a very convenient excuse to not hear the words of the gospel. As Richard Foster wisely points out in, his, in one of his books, it may help all of us to remember that we are to receive our understanding of how human fathers are supposed to function by learning what God is like not the other way around. One of the greatest revelations to believers contained within the Bible is that God is our Father. However, everyone seems to have a different concept of what God is like as our Father. 
even Christians today may not have a very clear picture of that. They ask questions like, well, why doesn't, doesn't God hear my prayers? Uh, he mustn't care. He must be too preoccupied. Maybe I'm not worth his time. Why is he allowing me to go through this time of pain if he loves me so much, etc., etc.? You've heard the questions, and those questions are valid. Why does he do what he does? We may never have any satisfying answers to those questions, but just remember, however, that Jesus could have asked all of those same questions in the Garden of Gethsemane before he died. However, in the midst of the storms of life, we need to understand one clear truth about God as our Father, that Jesus has down pat, that he's a faithful Father, and he is a good Father. If there's one thing I want you to take home today, it's an understanding that God's heart is a faithful heart. Whatever you're going through at this juncture in your life, no matter how painful it is, no matter how frustrating it may be, you need to keep a white-knuckled grip on a few truths that are drawn from the familiar words of John here in chapter 3. And the first one is this. It's that the heart of our Father, Heavenly Father, is a heart of uncommon concern. Verse 16. You know that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, it's difficult to fully comprehend God's concern for us because we have never seen God face to face. Yet at the same time, there are clear indications in Scripture that he is constantly and immensely concerned about us. One of the most prominent examples is found in Ezekiel chapter 34 few verses out of Ezekiel. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. So great verses. So he's concerned enough then to pursue us. Throughout Scripture, you'll find exhortation after exhortation that we are to seek God. They promise that if we seek Him with all, with all of our hearts, that He will let us find Him. However, when I read a passage that tells me that He pursues me, it makes me think that just maybe I might be something special in His eyes. You get that picture? It's incredible for me to think that the Lord of the universe would pursue me. Or you, do you feel that way? But he does. And that reveals something to me about his heart as a faithful father. As the cliche goes, lost people matter to him. Yes, black lives matter, no question about it, especially to God. And they ought to matter to you and me. But way beyond that is the clear and present gospel message here in John 3.16 that in addition, lost souls matter to God. And he is a relentless pursuer of them. I remember an experience I had years ago, years ago. Some of you know this, a lot of you don't. 
But my eldest son, Joshua, who is now 41 years old, thank you very much, at the time of this story, he was 11. But when Joshua was just a little guy, he and I went to a Red Sox game in Boston, just the two of us, and at one point during the game, he had to use the men's room. And we had already found out where it was. We had scoped it out. And it wasn't very far from us at all, from our seats. And I said, you know where it is? And Josh said, yes, and proceeded to go by himself. I said, I, I said you want me to go with you? And he said, nope, I'm going to be fine. So as I watched him leave the stands and turn into the stadium, I decided to follow him to make sure he didn't get lost in the 33,000 people that were there. In the blink of an eye, he was out of my sight. I, I searched everywhere for him and could not find him. I went back to look where our seats were to see if, he had, if we had missed each other, and he wasn't there. I began to get a little panicky, okay? I realized that Josh didn't know our seat numbers. And I knew he wasn't used to being around that many people. So I waited by the entrance to the stadium and prayed, and still nothing, and my heart was sinking a mile a minute. And I was trying to think of how I was ever going to find him, and my mind and my heart were racing, and I was already trying to figure out in my mind how I was going to tell my wife that I lost our son at Fenway Park. <laughs> Finally, I went back to check on our seats one more time, and there was Josh watching the game as if nothing happened. And he didn't seem to care one iota that I wasn't there or that I might be lost. Here's the thing. Mark this. I was more worried about finding him than he was about being found. I think my wife is still horrified when I tell that story, and rightly so. But through all that experience, I came to realize a very profound principle about my relationship to my Heavenly Father that day. For years and years, he pursued me, but I was not interested in being found by him. In Luke 19, 10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And maybe someone close to you has drifted from the Lord. Maybe they're actually running away from the Lord. Friends, God is in the business of pursuing people. He will pursue them, not in a panic, not nervously or helplessly, but relentlessly as a concerned, faithful father. Maybe he's pursuing you right now. Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will sup with him, dine with him, and he with me says Revelation 3.20. Maybe you haven't experienced that kind of fatherly concern in your life to date. You can with God. He puts situations in our lives which are designed to draw us to him. We need to recognize that he seeks us first and then we seek him, according to Jeremiah 29. That's the heart of a faithful father. He's concerned enough to pursue us, but he's also concerned enough to protect us Psalm 91 says this, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. 
shortly before Denise and I were married 43 years ago, tragedy came crashing down on a family that lived across the street from her family. The Perrys were a pleasant couple with a three-year-old son by the name of Ricky. Denise used to babysit Ricky all through her years in high school and came to love him dearly. And although he was a special kid, he was also like any typical three-year-old, active, spontaneous, and quickly distracted. Well, a typical now-you-see-him-now-you-don't ball of activity. That's what Ricky was. Now, one afternoon, Ricky's dad headed over toward the edge of their property to talk to a neighbor by the edge of the property, and through the sliding glass doors and out onto the deck and past the pool, Ricky followed his dad. His dad called out, come on, Ricky, and continued heading for that neighbor with Ricky supposedly close behind. Well, that family and that neighborhood will never forget the terror and the shock as Ricky was pulled out of that pool, unable to be revived. In the blink of an eye, Ricky had changed course and he wandered only a few feet out of the shadow of his earthly father's protection. It's a tragedy. But I want you to know that as believers in Christ, no matter how far we drift or how fast we change directions, we can never be outside of our father's sight. Our Heavenly Father never sleeps. He is always there to protect us from eternal harm. Psalm 121, my favorite psalm. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Even though the Lord allows us sometimes to undergo physical temptations and painful trials, he preserves us until we reach the end of our journey. In other words, God doesn't guarantee us a life without problems or pain or difficulty. But ultimately, your salvation and mine, both spiritually and physically, is guaranteed. That's the heart of your Heavenly Father. He's concerned enough to pursue us. He's concerned enough to protect us. And he's concerned enough to provide for us. One of the greatest aspects of God's heart as a faithful father is that he provides for our needs. Amen? Not just our physical and emotional needs either, but the greatest need of all, he provided for our ultimate need, our eternal need. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The fact is we needed a savior. And God went beyond all conventional concern and gave us what we could not have ever provided for ourselves or produced for ourselves, a perfect sacrifice for our sin. A plan of salvation, a promise of life. He gave us his only begotten son. Now, if you're ever tempted to think that your heavenly father is not concerned about you, that he has somehow 
forgotten about you? That his heart does not go out to you? You need to think that one through again and go back to the most familiar scripture verse in the Bible. Remind yourself of the words once spoken also through the mouth of Isaiah to the children of Israel. In Isaiah 49, verses 14 to 16, the prophet writes, But the people of Jerusalem said, The Lord has abandoned us. He has forgotten us. And so the Lord answers, Can a woman forget her own baby and not love the child that she bore? Well, even if a mother should forget her child, I, God says, will never forget you. Jerusalem, I can never forget you. I have written your name on the palms of my hands. And then after you've thought about Isaiah's words, think of Jesus, the only son that God gave for you. In 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 17, we read and remember that the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites when he judges. God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. He paid for you with precious lifeblood, the lifeblood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. The heart of God's fatherly love for us is a heart of uncommon concern. He's concerned about where we are, so he pursues us. He's concerned about where we are headed, so he protects us. He's concerned about how we end up, so he provides for our greatest needs. And not only is the heart of our Heavenly Father, one of uncommon concern. But secondly, the heart of our Father is a heart of unconditional compassion. Unconditional compassion. John chapter 3 and verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. You see, God knew that we didn't need judgment we needed grace. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. But the Lord still waits for you to come to him so he can show you his love and compassion. For the Lord is a faithful God. Blessed are those who wait for him to help them. He's sensitive and sincere. Many people get the idea today that God loves to condemn people and cause them pain. Therefore, they reject the concept of any kind of God that would judge people and send them to hell or a God that would discipline us as children when we sin. But the problem is, is that God isn't the one to point the finger at. Not if we're being honest. Look at verses 18 and 19 of John chapter 3. He who believes in him is not judged. But he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the Son, the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. You see, the fact of the matter is it's our lack of response to his outpouring of compassion that causes us to be judged. When we reject his warnings over and over and over again, we have to pay the painful consequences of those choices. God is not some sadistic deity who takes pleasure in pain. On the contrary, as one pastor used to say, when God says don't, he says don't hurt yourself. Right? You've heard me say that many, many times. 
Again, in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23 and verse 32, do you think I enjoy seeing an evil person die? Ask the sovereign Lord. No, I would rather see him repent and live. I do not want anyone to die, says the sovereign Lord. Turn away from your sins and live. New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord isn't really slow about his promise to return, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to perish, so he is giving more time for everyone to repent. You see, he's sincere and he's sensitive to our need. He's also sacrificial. He would sooner die than to have us suffer pain and death. That's exactly what he did according to this text in John chapter 3. So how have you responded? Maybe you haven't experienced sensitivity or sacrificial love from your earthly father. Maybe you can't even comprehend what that even feels or looks like. Maybe you can't, well, maybe you're wondering why you're going through such pain and suffering in this life and you find it hard to think that God is even interested, much less sensitive or compassionate towards you. But consider this. Just Open up your mind to consider this. Might it be that your sufferings is the very thing that is drawing you to God? He understands suffering and rejection better than anyone does. I often wonder how people who claim to embrace Buddhism find solace in a so-called deity who is represented as an overweight old man sitting fat and happy in the lotus position with his eyes closed to the plight of all who stand before him, it seems to me that a person in pain wanting to find hope and peace would be more likely drawn to one who knows our hurt intimately, has personally experienced our pain, the depths of our hell on a torturous cross of crucifixion, has tasted our death, yet has triumphed over it through his own resurrection from the grave. Wouldn't you think that would be the one you want to look to? John Stott once wrote in his book, The Cross of Christ, in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples, he said, in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time I have had to look away, and in my imagination I have turned instead to the lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. He says, that is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain and he entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us our sufferings become more manageable in light of this, he says. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we stamp another mark, the cross which symbolizes divine suffering. Over the years, I have encountered much smaller situations involving my own children and grandchildren that drives this truth home to me time and time again. 
And now it may seem insignificant compared to the pain our Lord Jesus had to deal with, but it illustrates the basic principle. I remember, I remember as a very young child, my granddaughter, Emily, got a pressure-treated splinter in her foot, and Denise asked me, as I had done so many times to all of our other children, to remove it, and I shuddered to think that what was going to happen. But I really didn't want to do it. I didn't want to see the look of fear on that little face and experience that agony all over again. I thought I was through with it now that my children were grown. That's for somebody else to deal with now, right? Because I remember a time when my daughter, Emily's mom, got a splinter in her foot from a pressure-treated piece of wood, which was quite sizable, and it had to come out, and Denise had to hold her down while I removed it with a needle. And it hurt. And she screamed. And then I hurt. And inside, I was screaming. And it undid me to think that I had to put her through that pain, but it was for her benefit, wasn't it? She didn't understand it at the time. And to her, I was this insensitive dad who was putting her through hell on earth, but I knew it had to happen. Thing is, five minutes after that splinter was out, she had totally forgotten about the pain but I didn't. Still haunts me to this day. Listen, friends, you can take this to heart. Mark this. Long after your pain has ceased, God still remembers it. God still remembers it. He has total recall. Psalm 56, verse 8 says, You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? He remembers the incident at school when the kids made fun of you and bullied you. He experienced that. He knows what it's like to have to give up a child and release them to a world of hateful, evil people. I talk to parents all the time who share with me the pain and the frustration they have experienced over their own prodigal children. And though they have prayed and brought them up in a Christian home, they're not following Christ. And as a parent, it pains them to no end. God knows that pain. He knows the pain you may be going through right now and will remember it long after you've forgotten it. His sensitivity to us is beyond measure. His sacrifice for us is beyond imagination. He has sacrificially given us his son as an act of his compassionate love. That's the heart of your father. But the father's heart goes beyond uncommon concern and unconditional compassion. Within the father's heart lies a quality that has all but become extinct in this day and age. And it is something every child dreams about and hopes for. And yet in today's world, it doesn't seem to take place very much. And that is that the heart of your faithful father is a heart of uncompromising commitment. Uncompromising commitment. Now, the rat race of today's demands finds fathers rushing in and escaping out. Every day the race runs frenetically closer to old age and for some with no meaningful interchange between dad and the kids. The pattern among many fathers vacillates between preoccupation and passivity. And I think maybe sometime during this COVID-19 crisis, maybe 
in this lockdown period of time that people have experienced, maybe God was trying to say, hey, spend some time with your family now, Dad. But you know what's happening now? People are working from home. I'm wondering if they're spending any time with their kids now because they're working morning, noon, and night. They can never leave the office if the office is your home. You know what the Bible reveals to us about the heart of our Father in heaven? It reveals that his is, his is a heart of uncompromising commitment, a heart which delights in giving us his undivided attention, his undeniable acceptance, and his unending affection. We have his undivided attention. He loved us enough to give us his son. He gave us his son that we might have life, eternal life. That doesn't mean present life in endless quantity. Praise God for that. But a whole new quality of life. And within that new quality of life, we can bank on his continual spiritual presence with us now and his personal physical presence with us later. In eternity. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5 says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. We don't have to worry about trying to get his attention because he's always available. Fact is, he's trying to get our attention. But people are not finding God in their everyday lives for the same reason that a thief doesn't find a policeman because they're not looking for him. God is present and available. Here's how the Living Bible puts it. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 says, Let him have all your worries and cares, for he is always thinking about you and watching over everything that concerns you. I like that, always thinking about you. So we have his undivided attention, and we have his undeniable acceptance. We live, we live in this performance-oriented society, and acceptance is always on condition, isn't it? The kingdom of this world is a kingdom of rejection. Yet God accepts us on the basis of faith in Christ, not on whether we're good enough or not. He's not standing there like some niggling critic waiting to cut our performance apart. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, For God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That kind of love that God pours out upon us does not ebb or flow according to the way that we look or smell or act or anything. He loves us, period. He doesn't accept us only when we get our act together. He accepts us as we are, not as we think we should be, but he accepts us only on the basis of our acceptance of Christ. Now, I love my kids and I love my grandkids, and I've picked them up and hugged them, and I've kissed them when they've been full of drool and full of spit up and mud and dirt and blood and sweat and tears, but I don't want them to stay that way. I love the kids, not the junk. So I clean them up, and I clean them off. You see, I, re I reject the slime, not the sons or the daughter. Yes, you've sinned, and so have I. Yes, God hates it, but he loves you, and he loves me. Enough to provide a cleansing solution in his son, Jesus Christ. Yes, you can come as you are, but you need to realize that you can't stay that way, because God won't let you stay that way. God doesn't want you to stay that way. He loves you too much, and he will turn you into the child that he wants you to be in his time at his rate. 
We have his undivided attention, his undeniable acceptance, and finally we have his unending affection. If you are a child of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, Romans 8.39 says it all, that there is nothing in all creation that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is ours through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? God's love for his children is not based on performance, it's based on a person, the person of Jesus Christ. In Christ, the love of God is poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit so that what he said to Israel in the Old Testament is absolutely true about us today. In Jeremiah 31 and verse 3, God said, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. That Hebrew word, loving kindness, is used about 250 times in the Old Testament. It is God's covenantal love that can never be broken. And it's only realized on the basis of one thing, that the heart of our Father is realized through one uncomplicated choice. The choice of whether or not you will receive the Father's love by receiving his Son, Jesus Christ, whom he gave for us. And the good news of God's love presents us with only two options, believe or perish. There's an old Calvin and Hobbes comic strip that captures this idea perfectly. Calvin says to Hobbes, I feel bad that I called Susie names and hurt her feelings. I'm sorry I did it. Well, maybe you should apologize to her, Hobbes suggests. Calvin thinks about it momentarily and then retorts, I keep hoping there's a less obvious solution. Folks, when it comes to receiving the Father's heart of love, the obvious solution is very simple. Believe and receive Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 12 says it very clearly. For to all who received him, to them, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Will you? Will you come? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, God our Father, Holy Spirit, triune Godhead, you have shown us how faithful you are. Father God, you have shown us how faithful and loving and compassionate and sincere and sensitive you are. And it's all wrapped up and summed up in your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you gave to us as a gift, as a sacrifice, as an offering for our sin. Father, I pray that there's no one within earshot of this message today or in the future that would be able to walk away from this without seriously considering the invitation to come to Christ, to repent of sin, to accept him by belief and by faith, and to be forgiven and to be given the gift of eternal life. Father, I pray for all those that are listening to this today that the Holy Spirit would make this come alive in them. If they don't know Jesus, that they would, and that you would be glorified in and through it all. For I ask it in the precious name of Jesus Christ, because he is worthy. Amen.